How y'all doing? Everybody doing all right? All right, good. Good to see you again. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, I uh, want to welcome you on behalf of the church family. Uh, I'm Pastor T, and uh, we can't think of any place we'd rather you be than with us, uh, praising our God and hearing from Him in His Word. We are, Lord willing, this morning going to finish up our series through the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with us to Zechariah chapter 14. If um, that sounds like a trick question, where is Zechariah? Uh, then find the Gospel of Matthew. Then go back one book, that's Malachi. Go back two books, that's Zechariah. Next to the last book in the Old Testament. Um, so on page 967 in my Bible. Probably won't do you any good. As you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer for us. Indeed, Lord, we praise you for you have won the victory. You have defeated death and the grave. You have defeated judgment and Satan. You have given us the victory over all of our enemies through faith in you. You have given us who believe eternal life. You have accounted to us your righteousness. And you have purchased for us a place in the Father's kingdom. And we ask, O oh Lord, that as we look at Zechariah, that you would speak to us of this great victory. That you would speak to us words of hope. That you would help us in our pilgrim's journey and assure us that hope in you will never be disappointed. And so turn every heart and every ear to your word. Give us understanding. Give us faith. And keep us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's nothing like knowing the future to help us endure the present. Knowing what's coming gives us strength, doesn't it? It helps us to get ready for whatever tomorrow holds. I mean, for example, when we're diagnosed with an illness, it helps to have the doctor tell us what to expect and what course of treatment to look forward to and, and even what side effects may come up. Many pregnant women, when they find out they're pregnant, they go by that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And they begin to major in the weeks of the development of the child. They even count differently. People ask the guy, you know, you know how far along is your wife? And, you know, the guy be like, uh, she's about three months. Wife be like, I'm 27 weeks and eight days, you know. It's that knowing creates confidence and expectation. And knowing the future is especially helpful when you've been through something and you're still shaken. In our text this morning in Zechariah, you'll recall Israel has been through the major trauma of war and they have been 70 years in exile. And now they're coming by God's work 
back into the land of Israel and they have a, a calling on their lives to rebuild the, the city, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish worship in Israel, to reestablish a relationship with God and, and to reestablish Jewish society. And they've got enemies all around them who trouble them and delay the work and, and interrupt the work and come against them in all kinds of ways, dishonest and underhanded. And maybe, fresh out of the trauma of exile and war, they're uncertain about the future. That'd be understandable, wouldn't it? They've been so rough that they got questions about, will we make it? What's next? What, what challenges lie before us? And it would be, it would be no surprise if, if Israel as a nation was largely anxious and worried and fearful and doubting. And the question is, what does God do for his people when we experience such things? Well, our text shows us that God gives his people vision, a vision of the future, of what's to come. And by that vision, he means to root and establish, to strengthen and to encourage his people with that knowledge. So we look at Zechariah this morning. We want to hang our thoughts on three points, or three questions, really. I want to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what will happen before God comes? What will happen before God comes? That's what we're going to see in Zechariah uh, verses 1 to 5, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Second question is this, what will happen when God comes? When God comes. That's what we're going to see in verses 6 to 11. And then finally, what will happen after God comes. After God comes. Verses uh, 12 to 21. So we're going to get the before, the during, and the after of the coming of God. And may he strengthen us as we look at his word. So let's take that first question. What will happen before God comes? Look with me at Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 5. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So what happens before the Lord God comes? There are two answers to that. The first answer, very simply, is suffering and struggle. Suffering and struggle. Verse 1 tells us, a day is coming for the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase there. It's for the Lord. It's not just a day of the Lord, but this is a day in some way that is specially belonging to the Lord. It's about Him. The day of the Lord is a, about the Lord. In fact, all of life is really about the Lord. We slip into the temptation of thinking it's about us. 
And, and we come to think that God is there to serve us. But God, the Bible tells us, is there for himself. Not, not selfishly, but he's there to magnify his own glory, to exalt his own name, to, to make himself known in all the world. And in fact, that's the best gift to his creation, is to know him, to see him in his glory, to, to see him in his power and his majesty and his might. And here we're being told, as Zechariah looks down the card of the time, he looks down to a day, it is a day that is for the Lord day where he vindicates himself and honors himself. And listen, beloved, the evidence that this day is for the Lord is right there in verse 1, isn't it? The spoil taken from you, taken from Israel, will be divided in your midst. And that's cold-blooded. Israel will be plundered, and there won't be anything they can do about it. They're going to watch their captors divide up their possessions right in front of them. And things get worse. Now, Zechariah is using the language of, of, of apocalyptic literature. In other words, he's using the language of, of symbolism here. And he, and he goes on to talk in ways that, yes, are literal, but also are meant to tell us something even deeper. Notice now, verse 2, God calls the nations of the earth against Jerusalem to attack it. The city is conquered. And what happens in war? But, but terrible war crimes are committed against Israel. Their, their houses are plundered. Their women are violated. And the Bible uses that language to really talk about the, the sort of deepest, most troubling, emotionally disturbing kinds of trauma that people can experience. And this is what he's painting a picture of. And then there's half the people who go out in exile and half the people who are trapped in the city. Now, don't miss this. God causes the suffering. Notice there, he says, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem. The Lord uses the pagan, unbelieving nations to judge his own people. And we are we brought to mind what is said in the New Testament, that judgment begins at the household of God. The day for the Lord is a day before it comes of suffering. God's people will see defeat and devastation. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was asked in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming? You remember what he says in verses 6 to 8? You can write this down. I'll read this for you. The Lord Jesus says there, you will hear of wars and what? Rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Wait a minute, Jesus. Wars and rumors of wars. There's wars everywhere. Don't be alarmed. No, don't be alarmed whether Hillary Clinton is elected or Donald Trump. Don't be alarmed whether Russia is in the news or China. He says, for this must take place, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then the Lord Jesus says this, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. You see this picture of devastation and destruction, of suffering and sorrow? That's the beginning. The end is not yet, and it gets worse. See, the knowledge of the future would be completely discouraging, wouldn't it, if the Lord didn't tell us something else in this passage. To meet our suffering and our sorrow, the Lord promises help and hope in verses 3 to 5. Notice there, the Lord brought the nations against Jerusalem, but the Lord also, notice in verse 3, fights the battle against the nations. 
He dresses as a warrior on the day of battle. He takes his stand on the Mount of Olives, and he fights for Israel. And again, notice the, the apocalyptic language here. The Lord lands on the Mount of Olives, and, and it's not like you and I just dropping off the bus on the Mount of Olives and, you know, nobody notices. No, you know, Zechariah sees a kind of earthquake. He places his foot on the Mount. The Mount splits in two and moves towards east and west, and there's a valley in between. So great and cataclysmic will be the coming of the Lord that the earth will tremble, the hills will split, and he will stand between his people and the nations and fight their battles for them. And so in the same way that the Lord often brings the pagan nations against Israel in judgment against Israel, he will also then fight for Israel in judgment against those nations who do not believe in him. His judgment is efficient, beloved. In the same trauma and calamity, he can both prune his people and judge the nations. And so he comes, and, and he is our hope. The battle is not ours, beloved. Even, you know what? Even our fights are not ours. They're the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. The enemies rage and they come against God's people and God's people are promised here suffering and calamity and, and we're not to think that it's about us even though we feel it, even though we endure it, even though we experience it, we are to remember it's still about God. And even the, the fight that needs to happen in order that we might see victory is a fight that is in God's hand. It's a fight that he has taken up and it's a fight, beloved, that he will most certainly win. The battle is the Lord's. And we have this hope, don't we, at the end of verse 5. Notice there. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. I love this, that phrase there, my God. Zechariah is giving this vision, and he's thinking about Israel, and he's thinking about all the nations, and he sees the Lord set foot down on the Mount of Olives, and Zechariah says, that's my God. I don't know about all the rest of y'all, but that's my God. I don't know all the suffering and all the warfare and all that's going on here, but my hope is not in horses, is not in chariots, it's in my God who will come, notice, with all his holy angels. He will come with the armies of heaven. He don't need them, but he's going to come with them. And, and the armies of heaven are going to fight the battle of all God's people. And here Zechariah breaks out in the language of covenant, of personal relationship. My God, my Lord, my King, my Savior is going to come on that day, and that is my great hope. I look at the wars and the famines and all the troubles. They don't inspire hope. If I look at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul says in Titus 2, when he talks about looking forward to that blessed what? Hope. The glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I look out to that hope, then I know my help comes from the Lord. And so, yes, what does Zechariah see before the end comes? He sees sorrow and suffering, but he also sees help and hope. Now, the other thing to learn about Zechariah's reaction here is, is what we're saying. It's, it's a turning to God. Someone has said that our suffering may either make us bitter or better. So he sees the suffering that's coming, and, and it prepares him 
to be better, not bitter. It prepares him to hope yet in God rather than turn away in anger, to turn away in distrust, to turn away in doubt. He, he puts his confidence in the same God who, who sent the calamity. He, he recognizes that nothing has come into his life that didn't first pass through God's hands. And the same God who has entrusted him with suffering is also the same God who will fight his battles for him. And so he hopes in the Lord. He hopes in the Lord. And this teaches us something about waiting for the day of the Lord, doesn't it? It teaches us something about the, the suffering and the struggle that we will see. God, beloved, does not promise us a struggle-free life. I don't care what your favorite television preacher told you. God does not promise us a struggle-free life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, what? Will be persecuted. And what does Jesus tell us? The Lord says in Matthew chapter 5 or, or Luke chapter 6, you can see it in both places, Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, he says, blessed are you. He says, happy are you, blessed are you, when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, on account of him. I didn't say, blessed are you when they hate you for a reason. He said, he said, blessed are you when they reject you because of me, right? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, this is a marvelous thing. First comes suffering, then comes God. And he will not only fight our battles, but he says, now, for the suffering, I will reward you. Your reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Not slight, not small, not a little something for your pocket. Your reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, and I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Do write this, commit this to memory, live by this. Keep this in your heart, store it up for the day that suffering comes. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This is what God says to the Apostle Paul. He says, for this light, momentary affliction, this is the part I like, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, there's just so much good counsel in, this, in those two verses for us, beloved. When we see our suffering, the first thing all is this, that all of our suffering is light and momentary. Now, I don't mean all the suffering is easy. All the suffering is light and momentary in comparison to the exceeding weight of glory. Now, here's the thing that bakes my noodle. It is light and momentary compared to the exceeding weight of glory, which the suffering itself is producing for us. Beloved, if you're in Christ and serving Christ and suffering for the name of Christ, then your suffering is actually your servant. Your suffering is actually your slave. Your suffering is actually working for you this very glory that when you see it and you receive it and look back on the suffering, you say, man, what even no comparison. 
light and momentary. Scooby snack. <laughs> you know, the suffering is nothing compared to God's use of the suffering to produce for you glory, exceeding glory. And then he says in the next verse, verse 18, he tells us where to look. Don't look on the stuff you see. And in our temptation, we get in some pain and we be looking at the pain. No. Man, that hurt. I'll be glad when this is over. This ain't never going to be over. Can't nobody help me. Nobody knows. Trouble, I see. And we just focused on it, right? It's human. It's natural. But Paul says, now raise your gaze. Look higher. Look beyond the suffering to the God who has entrusted you with the suffering in order to produce for you this glory. And he says, now notice something now. He says, beloved, do not forget. The things you see, they temporary. They pass it. They transit. Don't care how long you think you're in it, it don't last forever. But the things you don't see, God and his kingdom and the, and the, and the eternal life that he's promised, that, beloved, is forever. That's what's real. The world you see right now and I see right now, this is the shadow world. This is the shadow of the substance of the things that are really real, which are the things that belong to heaven and the spiritual world. He says, now look beyond this and see those things that you don't see with the eyes of faith. That's the real stuff. Focus on that. The suffering is passing and the suffering is working for you glory. This is what I believe is in the heart of Zechariah chapter 1 to 5 where God says, listen, I'm going to send the nations against you on that day, that final day, and, and it's going to be devastating in one sense, but I'm your help and your hope, and I have a glory for you to share in with me. So, beloved, maybe you're suffering this morning in some way. What are you looking at? Who are you looking at? Where should you fix your gaze? And how do you think of your suffering? Do you think there's only suffering and that's the end? Or can you see in God's word how he plans your good God to work that suffering for your glory and your happiness? What happens before God comes? Suffering and sorrow, but also help and hope. That brings us to our second question. What will happen when God comes? What will happen when God comes? Look with me in verses 6 and 11, through 11 of, of Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. What will happen when 
God comes. Answer in one word, eternity. Eternity. And we see eternity unpacked for us here in, in four images on that day. First, there will be an unusual and an unending day. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7. See there, on that day in verse 6, there'll be no light and no winter. Praise God. Verse 7, notice now, there'll neither be day nor night, but at evening on this day, when there is no light, there will be light. How is there no light and no day or night, but there is light at evening? Revelation 21 helps us. You can look there with me or you can write this down. Revelation 21, verses 23 to 26. There, another apostle is given a vision of this same day, the end of time. And, and this is what he describes for us in verses 23 to 26. He says, the city, referring to the New Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. You see there? The light of heaven comes from the glory of God and from the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. By the light of the glory of God, all of creation will see and walk. It's an amazing thing to say there will be no need for the sun or the moon. You know how much of our life is regulated by the sun and the moon? And everything from tidal waves to our waking and sleeping. Uh, the, 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 the sun giving off its, its beams and its energy, perfectly heating the world in such a way that the world can sustain life. But in that place, there'll be no need for it because the very author of life will be present. And it will be in the glory of God, in the splendor, in the, in the shining, in the beauty of God that we will walk. Not in darkness and not in day but in the light that comes from his face. And so this will be an unending day. That day when he comes will begin eternity. And eternity will be like one long day in the face of God. But there's a second thing. There'll be an unending flow of living water. That's what we see in Zechariah 14, 8. This is not dead water or brackish water. This, this water has life in it, and it, and it gives life to everything. Uh, this afternoon, read, if you will, Isaiah chapter 33. The first half of that chapter is a beautiful prophecy that goes right along with this, where Isaiah is led out by an angel from the temple. And, and as he walks out, he first walks in water about ankle deep. And the angel takes him a little bit further and tells him to measure again, and the water is up to his knees. And the angel takes him a little bit further and tells him again, and the water is up to his waist. The angel takes him a little bit further and tells him to measure again, and, 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 and Isaiah says the water overcomes him, and nobody can cross it. He comes back out, and he looks, and there's this great river, and he says this river flows east toward the Dead Sea. And as it flows east toward the Dead Sea, there are living things in the river, and it gives life to everything around the river. Now Zechariah here sees pretty much the same vision, except the river now flows both ways, east and west. Not only toward the Dead Sea, but also toward the Mediterranean Sea. 
and it gives life to everything that it touches. And this very river now is a river. <laughs> Listen, beloved, this is an amazing thing. This is a river that flows from Christ himself. So the Lord Jesus takes up this very image in John's gospel. Remember in John chapter 4 when he's sitting out there tired and hungry and this woman comes out to the well and he asks her to give him something to drink? And you know, she's a little snooty. She like, how you going to ask me for some water? You ain't got no bucket. You know, you Jewish, I'm a Samaritan. Y'all ain't got nothing to do with us, but you want me to get you some water, right? And Jesus says to the woman, woman, just like that, woman, if you knew who it was talking to you and the gift of God, you would ask me to give you living water. Jesus himself is the one who gives this living water. John chapter 7, verse 17, he picks up that image again where he talks about the, the great tribulation, the, the time of, of sort of wars and rumors of wars and, and all that good stuff. But he comes out of the temple and he says this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, so to come to Christ in faith is to have this water flow right through your heart, to flow right through your soul, this life-giving water. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 7, I gave you all the wrong address on John. John 7, 38, Revelation 7, 17 where Jesus talks about the great tribulation and those who've come out of the great tribulations and have washed their robes and he's talking about their reward in verse 17 he says this, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes we begin to drink this water when we come to faith in Christ but we will walk right to the fount of this water when we go to that eternal day and drink from the river itself. It's Jesus who gives us this living water. This unending flow then of living water is a picture of our unbroken faith in Christ and the life that he gives us. The refreshment and the fellowship that we have as a part of our union with Christ. That's a part of this eternity. But notice the third thing. Not only is there an unending flow of living water, but now it's also that there is this unchallenged and unending king. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. When God comes, the entire earth will see him as the one true and living king. He shall rule everywhere over all the earth. When the text says the Lord will be one, it means there will be only one God in the world. When the text says in his name one, it means that all the names of the idols will be removed. It's hearkening back to what we saw last week in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2. Look there again real quickly. Zechariah says in that previous vision, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. There will be one God in the world. All the idols will be smashed and only this God's name will be called and will be worshipped. His name shall be one. So all the confusion that exists in the world about who God is and who we ought to worship will finally and forever be wiped away. The world will know its true king. 
He alone will be known. And that's what makes the song we're going to sing in a little bit, Amos' song, based on Psalm 47, so fitting in this series. This God, this one true God, is the one who will finally be truly praised when that day comes. Fourth thing we see in this section, eternity brings also the undisturbed and unending safety of God's people. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. The world gets turned into a plain, a flat sort of table-like terrain, all except one place, Jerusalem, the city of peace. Jerusalem remains exalted as the city of God in verse 11, higher than all of the other locations. And God, verse 11 tells us, will never again give a decree or a command to judge or destroy Jerusalem. So he's saying to Israel, who has come out of exile, whose whose city has been destroyed, who's now there to rebuild the city, hey, listen, there's coming a day where you will never be destroyed again. Well, there will never be destruction again. And because of that, notice the end of verse 11. Everyone who lives in the city of God will live completely secure. Now keep in mind, Zechariah's been given a vision not of human history, but of the end of time, that eternal death. This refers to the day that, that, that begins eternity. This, this is God's day. So Jerusalem here does not refer to today's land of Israel. It doesn't refer to sort of that plot of land. It refers to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, which we read so much about in Revelation 21 and 22. That will be the home of all God's people, Jew and Gentile, from all of time from Adam and Abraham all the way down to that last sinner who repents of his sin and trusts in Christ before the coming of the Lord. And be our home. It's the place that Christ in John 14 says he goes to prepare for us, to receive us again where he is. And in that home, beloved, there's no locking of doors. There's no police force. There's no gun violence. There's no drug addiction. And at home, there's no domestic abuse. There's no child abuse. And at home, we'll remember war no more. There'll be no elections and disaffected hearts because of elections. As glorious as the marches and the inauguration have been this past weekend, there'll be no more marching and demonstration of protest. They'll only be marching to go see Jesus. And in that home, all who have that address as their residence, they will experience this perpetual, this unending, this unbroken safety and security in the presence of God. The very moment God comes, eternity begins. Night gives way to light. The waters of life flow. The king of heaven rules and all his people are safe. But only those who believe in Christ can look forward to that day. And all those who believe in Christ will have this future. Our security, beloved, is in heaven with God. It's not in this earth. 
It's hard truth, but we must resist the temptation to base our safety on the things of this life. We need to be wise, right? So there's nothing wrong with an alarm system on your car or your home. It makes sense to lock your doors. Taking a self-defense class is a good investment. Calling the police makes a lot of sense from time to time. But security comes from the Lord. It's he who watches over us now, and the Lord keeps us, beloved. If we could number the troubles that we never even notice, that he keeps from us. He provides our lasting safety. He promises it, not necessarily in this life, but in that city, that new city that he's preparing for us. It's only in the New Jerusalem that we find an unending security. That's why we must make that place our home. That's why we must make it our business to put our hope in Christ and to follow him. What will happen? When God comes, eternity. This brings us to our final question. What will happen after God comes? What happens after God comes? Look with me in verses 12 to 21. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what happens after God comes? First of all, God will strike the wicked. You see that in verses 12 to 15. Uh, verses 12 to 15 tell us of this plague. You see it in verse 12. And this panic in verses 13 to 16, that, that, notice again, comes from the Lord. I mean, this plague is terrible. People rot, their flesh rots while they're standing. Their eyes, to use that again, that, that, that dramatic apocalyptic imagery, their eyes rot in the socket and their tongues rot, rot, rot in their mouths. This is the zombie apocalypse, beloved. This is World War Z. 
And the plague will even affect the animals in verse 15. You see that there? And we're not told what the plague is. It, it could be a kind of wasting disease like we see in 2 Kings, excuse me, chapter 19 during Hezekiah's day. Or some more fanciful commentators see in this a depiction of nuclear holocaust. We, we, we don't know. Text doesn't say. What it does say is God is the one who sent it. Verse 12. The Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. He will judge those who oppress his people and attack his people. And it's so bad that the people will turn against each other. Verse 13, each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. It's, it's chaos, beloved. And I think we're meant to see in this a kind of picture of hell, really. I think we're meant to see the divine judgment against all the people who reject God and reject his son. You can never do that safely, beloved. You can never do that without consequence. God is our creator. That means he made us. And because he made us, that means he owns us. He has the property rights to all of our lives. And he has the right to determine how we should live the life that he made. And when we refuse his lordship, when we refuse his rule in our lives, then we bring upon ourselves his judgment. And that's what we're seeing played out right here. Zechariah has to reach for apocalyptic imagery, symbols to point to a truth. What's the truth? Hebrews 10.31 puts it nicely. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's judgment really ain't no joke. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's worse than the symbols of rotting flesh and rotting eyes and rotting tongues. Beloved, symbols are always weaker than the realities they point to. The wedding ring, which symbolizes love, is weaker than the love itself. The diploma, which symbolizes the graduation, is weaker than the learning that led to the graduation. The symbols are always weaker than the reality. This symbol of judgment doesn't even begin to come close to describing the horror of judgment from God. God will strike the wicked after he comes. But there's a second thing to see in this text. God will save the worshiper after he comes. That's what we see in verses 16 to 21. Verse 16 to 19 teaches that those who worship are blessed. You see there in verse 16, they're going to have rain. Off in the Bible, and if you keep in mind, these are Middle Eastern people who live in desert conditions, and so often rain is symbolic of blessing. And you'll remember that Jesus uh, in the Gospels could say that God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That's our experience right now. That's, that's God's common grace. That's God's love shown to all of his creation, whether or not they believe in him. He's good that way, but he won't be good that way always. At the end of time, at the final judgment, he will withdraw his grace. He will withdraw his love. He will withdraw his blessing from those who have withdrawn from him. 
And so in verse 16, those who worship the Lord, they receive his reign, they receive his blessing, they receive his kindness, the lavishness of his love. But in verses 17 to 19, those who refuse to go up and worship the Lord, Egypt, the greatest superpower on earth in that time, and all the other nations who refuse to keep the Feast of Booths, God will withdraw the rain. He will lead them to their drought. He will cause them to waste away in a famine apart from his grace. He will save the worshiper, but he will strike the wicked. And notice in verses 20 and 21, God will take those who worship him and he will turn them into a kingdom of priests. See there in verse 19, the animals, the horses that will have bells with the phrase, holy to the Lord, inscribed on it. And you may remember, if you know your Old Testament, that that's what was written on the sort of headband of the priest who went into the temple to give offerings to God. He wore that placard that said, holy to the Lord, as he represented the people before God. And here now, that special sign which was given to the priest in that special act of worship is given now even to the common animal. It's given to all who are holy. And notice there in verses 20 and 21, the, the pots, all the pots in Israel will be holy to the Lord. They'll be set aside to the Lord. There used to be special instruments in the temple for, for boiling of flesh and the offering of sacrifices. Those were holy. Those were consecrated to God and only the priests could use them. And sacrifices were made on those instruments as worship to God, as a way of atoning for sin. And the priests, when they finished with the sacrifices, would take some of the sacrifice and that would be their portion. They would eat from that meal, or, or that would be their meal. They would eat from that sacrifice, and that's how God supplied to his priests. But here now we have a vision where that's not happening just in the temple and with the priests. We have a vision where that's happening in every pot, in every home where all the people now have become set apart, set aside as holy unto the Lord. And every meal that's cooked and every pot that's used, every common exercise and every great act of worship is consecrated to God. We're seeing a picture here of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, I believe, where he talks about our becoming a royal nation, a holy priesthood. And so now all of us, not just the pastors, but all of us, have become a priesthood of believers. All of us have become priests and servants to God, offering worship that is acceptable to him through Jesus Christ, his son. So your cooking is holy. Your driving to work, most days is holy. The work you do, whatever it is, holy unto the Lord. And this is why the New Testament in places like Colossians 3 says things like this. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. That's where you get your reward from, right? And so now, beloved, if you are in Christ, the whole of your life belongs to God. And the whole of your life is sanctified unto God. You are holy. Not because you're perfect. Now, don't leave with the wrong message like you holy and everybody else. Now, that's not what the text means. No, you are holy because you are joined together with Christ. You are holy because his righteousness has become your righteousness. You are holy because, as, as Colossians says, your life is hid in Christ. So that when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son. And now everything you put your hand to, is meant to be offered to God in worship. 
Every purchase you make, every drive you take, every touch of another human being, every word spoken to them, meant to be offered in worship to God and sanctified as holy to the Lord. So far from being sinners in God's sight, God has made us priests before him, holy through Christ. And beloved, this is how we have to meet the knowledge of our failures. They are many. There are many ways in which we are not holy, as this text says. Many ways in which we fail the calling of our, of our God and our Lord. There are many ways that we, we bring shame to ourselves when we think about how we spoke to that person in anger. But we think about what we refuse to give that colleague in the workplace. Or we just think about what we think about. There are many ways in which we may be made aware of our imperfection and sin. And yet, the gospel of the Lord speaks to us again and again. You are my holy priest. Christ has washed you with his blood. And his blood still atones for your sin. I have accepted you in Christ. And nothing will pluck you out of my hand. No, you're not done. You're not perfect. But I began to work in you, and I will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ comes and splits the sky, and you see him, 1 John 3, 2 and 3, seeing him, then you will be just like him. That's the work God has begun in you if you're a Christian, and that's the work that he's going to complete finally and decisively and forever on that day when he comes. All the struggles will be over. All the weaknesses will be over. All the blemishes will be over. All the sins of omission and commission over. All the stiff-necked sins and all of the, the weaknesses and corruptions of the flesh over because Christ will glorify us with himself. We will take upon him, on us his nature more fully than ever we have and we will be made fit for that glory for which we are prepared. We will see him and we will be with him and we will dwell safely in that new Jerusalem, never to face judgment again. Beloved, if you are in Christ, this is your life. And whatever comes, whatever the future holds, what comes after the future is this, holy to the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, being a Christian is no spooky thing, right? You, you may hear the angels sing, but most of us haven't, right? And if you tell us that's what you heard, most of us ain't going to believe you, right? So, so, you know, it's no spooky thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a thing that you and I can't produce, but God can. To be a Christian is to be a new creation. To be born again, to use other language that the Bible uses. It's when God comes to us and takes out the old heart of sin 
and places in us a new heart, beating and alive, out of which, as Jesus says, the, the, the waters of life flow. And he writes on that heart his own word, so that in you now is this word that gives life and this word that keeps you for Christ. And you're such a new creation that God lives in you by his spirit. He actually moves in. And so by his spirit, God lives in you, and God works in you to will and to do what he wants you to do. God works in you to change your, your habits, to change your thoughts, to, to change your life. And see, it's not a matter of you changing your life, and then God will accept you. It's a matter of God accepting you, then changing your life. That's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian isn't something you earn. It's not something you pay for. It's something God gives you. It's a marvelous gift. It's a gift he gives you with his son, Jesus Christ. To not be a Christian is a horrible thing. I don't mean that judgmentally. I don't, I don't mean to say that if you're not a Christian and somehow you're less than people. That, that's, that's not what I mean. It's a horrible thing because to die apart from Christ is to go to God's judgment. Christ died on the cross to take away God's judgment. He suffered that judgment in the place of sinners so that we wouldn't have to. And he was raised from the grave three days later. And when God raised him from the grave, God was proving to the world, this is my son, and I accept his sacrifice, and if you believe in him, you will live in my forgiveness and love. God having done all of that to now refuse it and to die apart from it. Right? All the words that are left are words like horrible and terrible and foolish. Don't die like that. In fact, don't even leave this room like that. Today is the day of your salvation. If you would today call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sins, Ask him to forgive you your sins. Tell him you have heard about this righteousness that he gives to other people. That you want him to be your righteousness, to be your Lord, and you desire to live with him and for him forever. God makes this promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him. Believe in him. Trust him. And your future will be a future of safety, of love, of the glory of God in heaven with him forever. Call upon the name of the Lord while you may be saved. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you that you have marked the calendar with a final day. You have appointed a time when your son will return in glory with all the angels of heaven. You have established a time when you shall put an end to rebellion and bring, O oh Lord, into play forever worship. You've appointed a time when you shall put an end to wars and rumors of wars and to death itself 
that when all those who hope in Christ will lay hold to that life which really is life. And indeed, that time has already broken into the world through the gospel of your Son, so that even now, mortal creatures may become eternal creatures through faith in Christ. And this is what we pray, O oh Lord, for all who gathered this morning who have not yet trusted in you. They may be religious. They may attend church. But they may not be following Jesus. Oh Lord, give them the hope of eternal life. Give them new hearts. Send your spirit into their hearts crying, Abba, Father. And give them, O oh Lord, eternal life. And Lord, we do know as your people we are going to see suffering. This world is broken, deeply broken. But the world to come is where our hope is and where our security is, with you. And so help us to live this day in light of that coming day. And help us to look past our suffering to the glory that the suffering produces for us. And help us to trust even deeper when we hurt in Christ our Lord. Make us better, not bitter, we pray as we endure this life, looking forward to that day which belongs to you. Keep your church, O oh Lord, we pray. Spread your gospel. Build up your people, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Amos, you want to come and introduce our closing?